Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Good morning, ladies and gentle people. How are you? How's your week been? He says as he reaches for his cup of hot coffee. What's, what's in your cup this morning? Are you a cocoa drinker, a tea drinker, a manly, strong coffee drinker like Jim and I? Right, Jim? You bet. <laughs> so tell me about your week. Ah, well, been enjoying the cool weather the past couple of days and uh, doing a little bit of antenna maintenance in the backyard. So I'm all ready to play radio this weekend. So a, a pet peeve. Yes. Last night at Memorial Stadium, they had the uh, Nebraska Marching Band, which is very cool. I, I saw that on the news, yeah. Here's my pet peeve. Jim, in the old days, they would show at halftime the marching band... Mm-hmm. When the when the broadcast was on TV, now they seem to have to go to talking heads and highlights as if we didn't watch the game, and they kind of <laughs> rehash the first first half of the game. I would rather watch the band. Too bad we don't have a choice there on that remote control that we can say talking heads, marching band. Yeah, I would agree with that. I've I've always enjoyed marching bands, whether or not I enjoy the sports themselves. And uh, so, as far as the talking heads go, you know, it's remarkable. You you listen for five minutes, and then after that, it's just the same thing over and over again. How many different ways can you say it? I, I bet if we had a poll, I, I think most people would opt for that marching band. I think so. Hey, so we've got more than that for a good show today. We've got Charlene with the Capital Humane Society and Pet Talk. She's our first up guest. Now, I wonder if they have pet peeves available down at the Humane Society. Well, you know, peeves is one of their names for the ghosts at, uh, at Hogwarts, so they may. <laughs> oh, my. We're going to have sort of a double header with Brent Rains. He joins us first for an update uh, with what is reality. After we take our bottom-of-the-hour break, he'll be back. And there's a brand-new book to talk about. Awesome. Um, I finished it last night. John A. Keel, The Man, The Myths and the ongoing mysteries. Uh, if you're into UFOs and the paranormal, John Keel probably had a degree of influence on your thinking. And we'll talk more with Brent here in just a few minutes. First up, we've got Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. And how are things going at the shelter? Things are going really well, thank you. So what happened last week with the Clear the Shelter? Was it a good event? It was. I think we did about 48 adoptions that included little critters like a parakeet and a lot of kittens. So we were super happy to see wonderful people come out and adopt and give these animals a loving home. We appreciate that, guys and gals. Make the Capital Humane Society the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. Um, What's coming up in the near calendar of events in the next 30 days? Sure. So we have a lot of things going on. Um, You could consider adopting a cat. The fabulous feline adoption promotion is going on. Um, And this is a really nice um, event in memory of Mary Jo Livingston's beloved cat, Shadow. Um, So adoption fees are covered for the first five adult cats that are adopted each day. Well, that's pretty cool. That's that's each day. Wow. That starts today, right? Wow. Uh, It definitely includes today. Yep. Well, with that in mind, let's jump into Cats and Kittens for Adoption. 
That is a great idea. We have so many really beautiful ones. We'll start with Coco. She might be the sweetest cat ever, we've decided. (laughs) (laughs) She's six years old, a spade female, mostly black with a couple little white spots. Uh, She's front declawed and looking for a safe indoor-only home. But she's the kind of cat that as soon as you walk into her colony, she's coming up and rubbing on you and telling you all about Mm. her day and is just very, very friendly. Okay, Coco is a great-looking cat. You can go to capitalhumanesociety.org and see that thumbnail. When you click on the picture, it expands. There's more information. And uh, Coco looks like a great first choice, Charlene. One thing that's the best hand warmer in the world is a black cat sitting in a sunny window. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, who's up next? Angel. And Angel is a flame point Siamese, a very pretty cat, blue eyes, a neutered male, about four years old. He's clever and charming. Siamese are just, they tend to be vocal and just a ton of fun. So Mm -hmm. Angel will definitely not disappoint. She will talk to you as you talk to her. (laughs) And the Siamese cats have been known to run up a hallway wall find the laws of gravity coming back down on the floor. I've seen it myself, so. Yes, they are very graceful. Coco, Angel, two great buddies, and then how about? Next up is Lucky, and Lucky is an orange tabby cat, a young cat, about six months old, a neutered male, has the medium length fluffy fur, um, is just an inquisitive, bright kitten, ready to have loads of fun and a new fa- uh, and in a new home with a family that loves him. That's a great pose, Jim. Looks like he's just peeking <laughs> around the corner. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> Are you feeling lucky? What are we going to do today? Coco, Angel, and Lucky. Uh, you can see him in person. Here's Charlene with hours open today and tomorrow. Please visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. We are open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. And the first five cats adopted today, the adoption fees are waived, correct? Uh, that's right, in um, honor of Mary Jo Livingston's beloved cat, Shadow. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, time for dogs for adoption. We are going to start with Rusty. And Rusty has a cute little grin on his face. I just love that picture. He's about three years old, a shepherd uh, mix, a neutered male, just a sweet boy, wants very much to be right by your side. His whole body wiggles when his tail wags. So if you're looking for a dog that's going to make you grin from ear to ear, it's going to be Rusty. Okay, the Rust person. Rusty, great-looking picture. And... uh... He's got a fun buddy. His or her name is? Achilles. And this is a big dog, 110 pounds. Wow. <laughs> St. Bernard Shepherd mix, about a year old, a neutered male, um, a very, again, big dog. I'm probably not done growing because he's just a year. So he's looking for a home with someone who understands the need of a large breed dog. Uh, He does have a lot of energy, too. um, So he needs a family that will keep him properly exercised, provide training, and awesome care. Okay, a Chili's. Is it a hard C or a soft C? I guess I make it a K, but... (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
Achilles or, or Achilles, he waits for you, a great big dog. You could almost take him and just like pull wagons with him. Rusty, Achilles or Achilles, and? Ginger Snap. And Ginger Snap is a five-year-old state female husky, really pretty with bright blue eyes. Uh, she is looking for a home with no cats and must meet other dogs to make sure they'll be fine friends. Um, huskies are very, very intelligent, so she needs someone who understands how smart she is and will provide her with plenty of training and interesting things to do. <laughs> the eyes of a husky uh-huh. always always get me. It's just, it's just like Ginger Snap is saying, what? What? Me? No. No, I, I had nothing to do with that. No. No, it was this... This guy over here, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay, three great dogs. Pictures are up of these and other dogs at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. And Charlene, what are hours open again today and tomorrow? We are open today and tomorrow at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center from 11 to 5.30. Okay, and uh, if you had the chance at halftime for a Nebraska football game to listen to and watch the talking heads on TV, or to watch the marching band, which would you choose? Oh, you got to go with the band. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Give the people what they want. Give them the band. That's right. Okay. Always good to talk with you, my friend. Hope you have a great rest of the weekend. Thank you so much for all you do. Make Charlene and friends the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn, and uh, Sulawesi is the old Celebes, and then Celebes Colosi, and then Colosi, and then now Sulawesi. It's an Indonesian coffee, and that's my, one of my favorites. So I have a place that grinds it for me here at Lincoln, and that's what's in my cup. And I'm making Jim suffer along today, and he's drinking the same thing. Oh, yeah, it's real hard. <laughs> Okay, we've got uh, a double header as we promised. We have Brent Rains now, and we have Brent Rains later. And Brent, this is going to be kind of a fun show with you. Really appreciate it, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Thank you. So you're you're in Tennessee. Are you still working, Brent, or are you retired now? I am retired as of uh, 2014. <laughs> Okay, congratulations now. So what fills your day? Uh, well, um, grandkids quite a bit. <laughs> uh, but when I, when I have a break, of course, I, I like to delve into UFOs and the paranormal and all kinds of high strangeness. And, of course, I have the online monthly uh, magazine Alternate Perceptions to keep running. That takes a lot of work. It can be time-consuming. have to try to fill it all in, uh, fit it all in, that is. And you've got <laughs> and, a very uh, tolerant and loving wife. Yes, yes, absolutely. She just uh, uh, joined me over in uh, Knoxville last weekend, uh, where I was a speaker and an MC at Tennessee's first real major conference called Alien Expo. And uh, she got to see an alien and had her picture taken in person. There was a, it was a person in a, a costume, of course, but it was quite convincing. 
Well, we've got a, a good second half coming up to talk about your brand new book, John A. Keel, The Man, the Myths, and the Ongoing Mysteries. Uh, tell me, uh, as a person with their finger kind of on the pulse of the paranormal, what's crossed your desk in the last 30 days that's piqued your interest? And or what's a kind of a sneak look at the September edition of Alternate Perceptions magazine? Well, um, I, you know, as I say, I was at Alien Expo uh, last weekend and uh, met some really fabulous people. And uh, one of them was a, a Reverend Michael Cotter, who is a, uh, he's a, a minister, but he's, he lives over in, uh, uh, in North Carolina, uh, in Asheville. But he's, um, you know, an alien abductee, but he's also very uh, spiritual, enlightening. I mean, he got a standing ovation. One of the only speakers who got a standing ovation at the conference. And there were some major power hitters, you know. Uh, not saying I was, but uh, we uh, we had uh, Kathleen Martin, you know, who's the uh, niece of, of Betty Hill, very involved in, in uh, you know, research into abductions and such. And, and Travis Walton was there, of course, well-known uh, abductee from 1975. And Ray Hernandez of the, uh, you know, free organization. Um, Stephen Bassett, uh, you know, advocate for disclosure. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, even Dean uh, Hagland, uh, a star from the, the old X-Files. And a uh, guy came in from London, uh, Andrew Go from uh, NASA Unexplained Files. So uh, it was very well attended. So we're going to have an interview with, with him. And... Uh, and tell him about his experiences and his uh, how he, you know, connects and relates to the spiritual components of these phenomena and such. So uh, we'll be interviewing him Monday night and uh, get that in there for people to listen to in the next issue. Interesting. Um, what What is the, the gist, if you could give us just a preview, what is his take on the encounters that people have had both historically uh, with... Um, the other beings, uh, as well as more recently. Okay, well, because um, after in September you'll be able to hear it live, and and you know, I mean, not live, but uh, you'll get to hear it in his own words. But uh, he's a very, uh, very positive person. He looks at uh, all these different, uh, from you know, the Christian perspective. Uh, from the Buddhist perspective, and he, he looks at the underlying positive elements of it and feels that, you know, a lot of times we have distorted uh, the real <clears throat> the real truth behind a lot of these things, uh, uh, you know, and, and he tries to find the good in all of it. And he's, he made a statement during uh, his talk that, uh, you know, if you're a Christian or, a, you know, a Buddhist, and you find this gives your life meaning, and uh, you're doing your best, then, then he fully uh, supports that. But he says, if, if you profess to be someone of a, of a spiritual faith, but you're you're going around and, uh, you know, belittling other people and, and abusing them in some way, then, then uh, he's got a problem with that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was, you know, just... Uh, I also want to do an interview in the near future with Kathleen Martin. We, we talked about that. And uh, 
trying to get up to date on, on her research and findings, and as well as Ray Hernandez. And, would, uh, would you have a chance, um, if you haven't already seen that, on Kathleen's website, takes a bit of navigating to find it, but there is a survey she did with Denise Stoner on um, people that claim to have had the abduction experience. And mm -hmm. as you might imagine from your background and your interest, Brent, there's a lot more going on with these people than just seeing a UFO. Oh, yeah, I was, I was, you know, really, this is the first time I've actually met her in person. You know, we've, we've talked on the phone, I've interviewed her before for uh, my magazine, but this is the first time to actually meet her. And, you know, I, I lived in Maine uh, back in, I was born and raised in Maine originally. And uh, in the 70s, I would just drive down, you know, from my home up in Hole near Augusta, the capital, down 95, Interstate 95, to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and I would visit Betty and spend a few hours. And back in July 1976, she invited me to to uh, to come over to Kingston, where she was where she was born and raised, and and uh, spend some time, you know, at her mother's home. And uh, so that was that was quite an honor. And she introduced me to uh, her sister, which of course is uh, Kathleen's mother, uh, Janet Miller. And I learned that uh, Janet's house was was haunted and. Uh, and that's what I talked about with uh, Kathleen at the conference, you know, as I was fixing to introduce her and she was going to go up on stage. And uh, in between, you know, that, talking with her and getting, getting on the stage, I asked her privately about uh, some of that again. And she described how years ago, um, when her son was only five years old, that uh, she heard this ruckus. They were spending the night at her, her mom's and... and uh, heard this ruckus from his bedroom and she opened the door and there was a ball of light flying around the bedroom and he was squatting at it. And uh, she was scared for his safety and, and grabbed him and uh, shut the door and you know returned with him to her bedroom where he spent the night uh, after that. But uh, there have been a lot of things that uh, went on with the family and uh, Kathleen is coming out more and more in the open about, you know, her and her mom's experiences, too, uh, things that, you know, hadn't previously been discussed. It's always been about Betty and, and Barney Hill. Mm -hmm. But there's there's more to that story as there is with, with so many others. We've had this last year, a couple of um, uh, really big people pass. Um, Stan Friedman was the first. He was mm -hmm. a research and writing partner of Kathleen Morden's. And then more recently... Um, the late and great Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who for many years was um, a member of our team. And in fact, the brand new book that I'm holding right here, um, excellent book, I might add, that you've written, Brent, the foreword is written by Rosemary. Right. She, uh, she also, I uh, have an interview in, in one of the chapters with, with Rosemary. Uh, a lot of her ideas and experiences uh, paralleled uh, quite closely with, with John Keel, who was a friend of hers. She was also a member of the Sport Team Society there in New York City. And, and uh, she has a number of stories which she shares uh, in the, the forward uh, about, about Keel, and, and uh, she thought very highly of him. And, and uh, when I... Originally, she, you know, her visionary publishing was planning to publish my book, but uh, due to her health and everything, um, she uh, 
she decided that, you know, I should go ahead with my upcoming talks, like in Knoxville, and, and I'm also be talking at uh, the Mothman Festival in September, to go ahead and uh, self-publish. But she'd helped me tremendously. Um, she had, in fact, when I first sent my script in, she recommended that I interview some other people as well and uh, suggested uh, a lot of things that I should restructure and whatnot because uh, she's uh, very good at <laughs> at her job as an editor and, and a writer. And uh, she gave me lots and lots of uh, good, healthy, constructive uh, suggestions. And uh, I followed up and... You know, I'm, I'm really sad that she, you know, it was only, I think, about five days after my book came out on Amazon that she had passed away. But when I talked with her last year, um, she had told me that she had been planning down the road at some point to write a book on Keo. And I told her that uh, that was great. I said that there's so much territory to be covered when it comes to Keo that... Uh, Lots and lots of people could be, you know, writing on him. And I says, you don't, uh, uh, you definitely need to do that, not knowing that uh, she was, was ill and never mm-hmm. would get the opportunity to do so herself. Does anybody, Brent, uh, know uh, what's going to happen to her publishing company? Uh, her husband, Joe, is he willing or uh, able to continue that? Does anybody know? Um. I really don't. I mean, I know that uh, people are are discussing, you know, pending book pro- projects that uh, you know that Rosemary is working on for him. And I know one had to be one person's had to be dropped, but uh, I'm not sure if he's going to uh, continue with that or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I don't know either. Uh, so um, the first Tennessee uh, Alien Expo conference, huh? Was it well attended? Yeah. It was well attended. Uh, there was an auditorium with the largest uh, uh, PowerPoint screen up on stage that, I, <clears throat> that I've ever seen. It just, you know, went right up to the ceiling. <laughs> huh? And uh, so whatever you projected, you know, it was uh, easily seen by the audience. But uh, I, the, the the chairs were about uh, over 400 chairs there, and they were, the, on Saturday, just about every speaker that all the chairs were were full. Some people were standing up in the back. Um, Sunday, when I spoke, uh, uh, a lot of people, I guess, you know, being Sunday they were at church or whatever, so it was uh, not as well attended. Um, you were doing good if you had about uh, half the seats filled. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was very well attended, and it was very well uh, put together. I mean, there were some glitches, and I know that uh, Katina Kyle, who... Uh, was the main driving force behind this, was constantly on the go. And being uh, MC, I periodically needed to get with her about, you know, what was going to happen next. And uh, I would just, you know, I felt bad about interrupting her because she was already going in 101 different directions. <laughs> but yeah. uh, it, it's at the, it was at the convention center uh, up on, you know, first floor and the second floor. And there were lots and lots of vendors, and they had a, a alien... Uh, contest um there was one person uh, dressed as a conehead from saturday night live <laughs> you know uh, and then there was one person who was dressed as uh, one of the aliens from the sagona weaver uh type movies there at which uh abductee tom reed uh, got into a mock fight with and some people were taking pictures and uh 
And uh, then there were some pretty aliens, too, you know, not uh, weird or whatever, just dressed in uh, spacey-type uh, outfits. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lady uh, I went up to that uh, had three novels that she had written on, on regarding alien abductions. And I got in a conversation with her, and I asked her, well, what, uh, why would anyone write a a novel like this, uh, was there perhaps any personal experiences you might have had? And so she told me about how it was after uh, an experience she had uh, down near Pensacola, Florida, along the beach, that something rose up in the air and then followed her car for about seven miles. And and that affected her so that that uh, later became the idea for these novels that she wrote. And so I've talked to her since, and I'm going to include the uh, some details about her experience and, and her writings uh, in the next issue as well. This is Brent Rain. He's the uh, publisher and editor of the online magazine Alternate Perceptions. And you can subscribe free of charge. The website info is apmagazine.info. Again, that's the letter A, the letter P, the word magazine.info. And Brent, uh, we're going to be right back after this bottom of the hour break, and we'll jump into all things John Keel. Sounds great. I appreciate it. Brent Rains, our special guest today, he's got this brand new book out, John A. Keel, The Man, The Myths, and the Ongoing Mysteries. Brent's also the author of On the Edge of Reality and Visitors from Hidden Realms. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorney. And we'll take a little break. We'll be right back with more conversation. It's really glad to have you out there. Hey, the Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska. KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM.
catches your eye with a predatory stare And you go willingly forward into a spider's lair She's been spinning a web and you can't wait to be caught Your battle's lost But far as even fought You try to keep your head Scott Colborn and Jim Shorney with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Jim's holding a copy of that book. Jim, I was one of the first people, I think, when this um, got placed for sale to, to get a copy of this. And it's both because I respect Brent uh, as a researcher and author, as well as I share a degree of interest if not fondness also for mm-hmm. John Keel. We've talked in prior shows about uh, my experience and others with having John Keel visit Lincoln, Nebraska back in the 1990s for a conference. So um, I've been looking forward this week to reading this book. And I, I just uh, skimmed over the foreword by Rosemary during the break, and it sounds like a really fascinating book. And I have to admit, I'm not that familiar with... Uh, with John Keel, so this is going to be an interesting show for me. You, yeah, you have you have just uttered uh, what a lot of people in our audience right now have been thinking and wondering. Mm-hmm. They probably also don't know a lot about John Keel. Uh, but as I said earlier, if you're at all interested in UFOs and the paranormal, then he's had a degree of influence. However one realizes that and we'll talk about that well i can tell i can tell already by reading rosemary's uh, forward that a lot of what he says are things that will resonate with what i've the conclusions i've come to Mm -hmm. so brent this is this is quite a book uh this is probably more than just sitting down for a month at the uh at the typewriter yeah yeah it uh it took a little you know going back and forth and uh you know Flashing a few words on the pages there and, and putting it one way and then saying, well, I think it would be better to rephrase that. And yeah, it take, <laughs> it took a little while there. It did. But uh, Tell us about how I you first it. got interested in John Keel. Uh, you were a young guy from, from Maine. Uh, yes, very young. And, uh, you know, my, my interest in the UFOs first went back to March 1966 uh, during the same time when all those sightings in Michigan were going on that were very heavily publicized. And, and uh, you know, uh, Dr. Jalen Hynek from Project Blue Book uh, went there to uh, look into it. And, and of course, uh, the Air Force naturally wanted him to present some sort of uh, statement that might kind of quiet things down a little. And, and uh, so he mentioned about swamp gas. And, uh, of course, immediately all the reporters there as he described later, began rushing to, uh, to phone into their editors. Swamp gas. He said swamp gas. But later he explained uh, when he wrote, uh, for example, the UFO experience that Dr. Hynek wrote in 1972, that uh, or published in 72, that uh, actually he was only attributing swamp gas to, you know, one or so of the sightings. Not all of them, you know. But um, he didn't have an opportunity to rephrase that. And, of course, it caused... Uh, a lot of uh, cartoons to be published and, and commentaries and newspapers across the the nation and uh, and uh, Gerald Ford, uh, who uh, was a U.S. congressman and I think in uh, in Michigan at the time, uh, 
you know, was very upset and, and felt that there was more to this than the Air Force had been living on. And, uh, of course, later when he became president, he uh, was vowed that he'd try to find out what he could. And like other presidents, didn't really find out all that much. But um, Brent, can I share with just an aside about uh, Hynek and, and Michigan? Sure. So I picked up Hynek from the airport in Lincoln, Nebraska, to take him to a conference here back in the 90s. Um, and, um, excuse me, that was in the 80s. And uh, so I asked him about this Michigan and swamp gas thing, and kind of mm-hmm. ruefully he, he uh, gave me a half smile and kind of shook his head and said... Um, <laughs> The backstory was that he'd arrived there and immediately jumped into reviewing all the data, the reports and research, talking to witnesses. He had been up most of the night and was basically coming out shortly after dawn, uh, and he walked out of this building, and there was this whole bevy of reporters shouting questions and thrusting microphones in his face. And... um, he said, you know, as a scientist, I'm studying the data, uh, and they wanted to have um, a reason for these sightings, what was causing it. So he said, A, B, C, he went down this list, and he didn't say swamp gas is the first thing. But when he got to swamp gas, he said everybody's eyes got big, and in mass, this group turned around and ran to find the nearest phones to call the story in. Dr. Heineck says swamp gas is causing the, the Michigan sightings. And he said, you know, that's one of the things, of course, I would take back, back if I could. Uh, he wanted to be remembered and known for more than, of course, just that. So, Right. Well, I, um, you know, I, Keel felt that, that uh, Valley and, and Heineck in the beginning had had criticized <coughs> his, his writings, <coughs> his ideas, and um, and I met Heineck at his home in September 1972, and it was right after his book The UFO Experience had been published. And in fact, I took a, a copy, a hard hardcover copy, with me, and he signed it, which I still have here on the shelf, and uh, very proud of. But um, <clears throat> anyway, he, um, I mentioned John Keel, you know, expecting no telling what kind of response I'd get. But he actually was very thoughtful and said that I find his writings actually very, very thought-provoking and, and interesting. And uh, I thought, wow, um, this is certainly interesting. And, and toward the last of it there, he was actually entertaining ideas of, you know, interdimensional uh, uh, aspects and mm-hmm. so on, but he he really didn't want to uh, publicly say a whole lot uh, because he was afraid of, you know, creating too much of a sensation. Uh, he certainly, being the guy who got considered Mr. Swarmgast, knew how easily things could get distorted. And uh, So as uh, a young guy, how, was, how were you uh, first introduced to John Keel? How did, <clears throat> did you buy one of his books, or...? Oh, well, okay, that was before his UFO books had ever come out. Uh, this was 1969. I had been reading his articles in uh, Saga magazine, mm-hmm. uh, in Mail magazine, which I had a, 
uh, who's hide from my mother, of course. Uh, you know, he was writing for these men's magazines, but his articles were very uh, thought-provoking and certainly challenged my my thinking. Um, you know, because he was talking about paranormal elements. Uh, what he called the bedroom invaders was was an article I think that came out in Mail magazine, where uh, experiences were suddenly awakening in the night, and there were these uh, humanoid figures in their their bedrooms, and they were like in a state of paralysis and such, and uh, telling about all this, how all these strange things would happen, poltergeist activity after an initial UFO encounter. And uh, so by, you know, but my first introduction to, of course, let's see, well, his Operation Trojan Horse and Strange Creatures from Time and Space, which Strange Creatures actually came out just prior to... Uh, uh, Operation Trojan Horse, which was really the one that really got people's uh, uh, attention at the time. Um, but that was in 1970. So I actually started writing to him before his books came out, but he talked about his books. And uh, I asked him about some of the criticisms, you know, about mistakes that he had made and, 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 and some of his writings later on when they came out. And he was telling me that uh, there were some ridiculous things that, that had happened um, with his material, they gave him galleys to proofread, but then they didn't even, you know, go back and, and correct them uh, after he sent them uh, the corrections, like uh, uh, something like 1968 became 1896, and invisible became visible, and, and distorting the whole meaning of his, you know, what he wrote. Um, and, you know, because I had pointed out uh, uh, the, the spelling of something that uh, location that had been been wrong, and he told me that you know that was another example. And in one of his anomalies, that he it was a newsletter he would send around to different researchers who were interested in uh, you know his thoughts on different things um, that he a lot of times wouldn't publish in the popular magazines. He uh, would write about. Uh, some of the, make, you know, he would learn new things that had come out. Uh, one researcher who lived in this town where these strange things had happened that he'd written about, um, I think it was New Lebanon, Pennsylvania, and it was a Kurt Southerly who went to the newspaper files and checked on uh, uh, this, this story. Come find out uh, there was a reference to uh, such things that happened in uh, uh, New Lebanon, I think, Indiana or something like that. So, uh, and then <clears throat> there was a story that uh, had been carried by Brad Steiger and other authors about a, a very large and unusual snake type cryptid that uh, attacked a guy on a horse and, and bit him, and the guy was uh, uh, had a fever afterwards and, and was hospitalized, and and it really affected him uh, traumatically and, and physically. And uh, and then got a letter from the guy and. The name was misspelled in the big popular literature at the time, and Keo had passed it on and copied it and then found out, you know, these, these things that were different from what was originally published, so he put that in his anomaly. So he was about trying to uh, to get things straight, but he said sometimes um, these mistakes just happen. Um, and uh, 
How was it? How was it that that John Keel and his um, view of a theory of everything, if you will, how did that differ from the prevailing winds of, let's say, ufology? Um, and did John did his views change or adapt to any degree? Or were they pretty consistent from start to end? <clears throat> Give me just a moment. Let me take a little sip here. My throat's going to dry on me. Yeah, this is this is Brent Rains. Uh, Brent's got three books out. Mm-hmm. This is the brand new one called John A. Keel, The Man, The Miss, and The Ongoing Mysteries. He's also the editor and publisher of the online magazine, which is an excellent free subscription for you folks. It's called Alternate Perceptions. And I would say that even besides the fact that I was interviewed for one of the prior issues. <laughs> it's apmagazine.info. And, uh, and that was a very, very good interview, too, by the way. <laughs> well, you're, you're very kind, but uh, there's other far, far better stuff that you've done there. So um, I suggest to our listeners that they... Go to apmagazine.info, and you can sign up for that free subscription and read it top to bottom every every issue. So uh, it's no wonder that you've got a little bit of hoarseness there because you were the master of ceremonies just a week ago at a big event. Well, yeah, um, that that's true. Um, and uh, I did quite a bit of talking and running <laughs> uh, at that convention center, which is a huge huge uh, place and it was upstairs and downstairs and uh but uh anyway so the, john uh, keels what was his theory of everything and how did that conflict if it if it even did with ufology well he i think in this day and time you know there's more talk of quantum physics and, and the paranormal and possible interconnections these days than, than there were back back then and he was uh i mean he came along in the 60s, uh, when initially he got into it in 66, he was um, offered an opportunity as a writer to, and he had a, you know, some interest in, in UFOs, having had a couple of sightings himself, at least. And uh, so he was uh, offered a job, an assignment to see if maybe he could write something for uh, Playboy magazine and uh, on UFOs. And so he went to the Pentagon and he did you know, interviewed him there, trying to find out what he could. And, uh, but the assignment ended up in the hands of Dr. Heinrich. But, uh, nonetheless, he decided to continue to pursue the UFO thing. And he traveled through 20 different states, did a lot of field work on, on, of his own. And of course, we know one of those locations was Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And, uh, he found a lot of, uh, things that were, not part of the general mainstream. A lot of the organizations didn't want to deal with occupant reports and uh, the uh, because they associate with the contactees, the lunatic friends, the woo-woo stuff. And uh, missing times wasn't you know missing time events were not really discussed. But he had written an article uh, for a major magazine back around '66 entitled uh, uh, "Who's Driving Who's Driving These the Saucers" or something, and and uh, he got called into the editor's office, and the guy waved his hand and said, you got some mail over in the corner. He said there was five or six bags 
<laughs> letter after letter, and it was all these people with stories about seeing occupants and having missing time and all these things. And I guess this is where, you know, because he says in, in Operation Trojan Horse, that uh, which was published in 70, that he had, you know, befriended over 200 contact experiences. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that this is probably where a lot of his contacts began right there. And uh, and he talked with, uh, you know, Major Donald Kehoe about uh, the fact they need to take the contact experience or more seriously because he uh, wanted to get, you know, uh, you know, his major organization, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP in Washington, D.C., which he started in 56, uh, former retired major uh, Marine Corps, and he wanted to uh, let the... Uh, he wanted to get a congressional hearing. He wanted the subject to be taken serious. And he, he uh, was constantly attacking people like George Damsky, uh, calling them lunatic friends, and really didn't want uh, you know his the organization's reputation to be tarnished with bogus reports. So uh, they they dismissed any time a, a fossil landed or a, a being got out of it. Uh, there was probably psychological or hoax, and they would just try to overlook it. Brad, that's and, what uh, that's what Richard Hall told me personally. Also, uh, he said that back in the '60s, NICAP, if they got the contact stuff, the reports, they either put them in the trash or put them way in the back of a file on the bottom of the drawer. Right, and and this is you know because this is the way the Air Force handled it. He was so you know Kehoe was so opposed to the Air Force, and yet he made some of the very same mistakes that. Uh, they had made because they were dismissing. Um, Brent, let you know, me ask you a question about NICAP, and just since we've touched on the subject here, did it ever seem at all strange to you that here is this civilian uh, investigative group of a bunch of guys and gals interested in UFOs, and the board of directors was heavy with people from the intelligence and military? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's something that uh, Bali noted in his Messengers of, of Deception, his book, Messengers of Deception, uh, I guess a couple of days, decades or so back. Um, it's um, And, of course, the Robertson report, panel report in 1953, the CIA orchestrated, that was something that they wanted to keep uh, an eye on, on the organizations, the civilian groups, and uh, what better way to to monitor it, absolutely, you know, possibly even to infiltrate it, right? <laughs> yeah. And, um, but, you know, Keel came along at a time when all this was sort of woo-woo, and, you know, people thought he was off his rocker, um, and, you know, he was having reflective, as he called them, the reflective factor, uh, some weird paranormal experiences himself, which most of which he seemed to keep to, him, you know, keep to himself, but he, he did let some of the stories out. And uh, and uh, he actually presented some things that uh, a lot of the serious researchers, and this wasn't a woo-woo, had missed, you know, hadn't really explored. Um, like, for example, how a lot of uh, Wallops Island, Virginia, uh, the Barum Cloud experiments uh, to, you know, to try to determine uh, the flow of magnetic fields in the upper atmosphere or whatever. And, and so there would be this, these strange lights that people would see. And uh, he wrote a lot about that and said a lot of UFO flaps. Uh, 
were caused by these things. And, you know, seeing distant lights over the horizon, you can't always tell uh, how far away it is. And people were thinking they saw something that was just over the tree or maybe went down and landed behind the trees when really they were hundreds of miles away. And uh, apparently these experiments would also befuddle radar systems. And uh, and I have a personal experience with this because back on October 4th of 67, I was only 15, and uh, I lived up on a hilltop in Hollow, Maine, and me and neighbors were going out about 7.30, 8 o'clock, and watching these lights toward the south, different colored lights just appearing in the sky. You know, I was all excited. I thought, hey, maybe it's finally happening, and I'm a witness, you know? <laughs> and uh, and then in Operation Trojan Horse, Keel describes that very same night, around about that same time, he's drawing, driving along the... Uh, Long Island Expressway, and he stops in Huntington, and there's police and civilians, you know, out in the field looking up at the sky, and and he joins them, and uh, and then in uh, this privately circulated newsletter he'd send around, Anomaly Number Seven, Fall 1971, which I believe you can probably access online, and I noticed a lot of his anomalies are, are there, and uh, he goes into this. Uh, aspect about the down cloud experiments. He doesn't specifically reference the one he described for that night, but um, he does describe a lot of other places where uh, Florida's Elgin Air Force Base in January 67 uh, did an experiment that caused a massive wave. And and uh, I ask, you know, different ufologists about <clears throat> people who consider themselves serious ufologists about down clouds and they really don't know anything about them. And uh, he was also into these uh, other things that people had reported. Um, said few laymen realized that ball lightning sometimes travels up from the, from the ground to the sky, which could cause uh, be responsible some reports of of uh, luminous uh, spherical objects that shoot up into the sky. And uh, he also talked about. Uh, these electric blue high elf, uh noctilescent clouds that uh, had produced a lot of UFO sightings and how the Russians had found that they reflected uh, radio and TV waves that are kind of still a, a mystery to us. And he talked about the air glow phenomena. And uh, the only time in a popular magazine article that he ever said anything about these, these matters, because generally they weren't that interested, was... Uh, California UFO back in 1989. Uh, Don Ecker was interviewing him, and uh, you know he asked him about uh, what should be done. And Hill noted that you know these funny lights seem to move on their own through the sky that uh, astronomers and physicists hadn't really fully addressed yet. He said, uh, "What would he do if he was in a position to do something?" Ecker asked him. He said, "If I were to be put in charge of a..." real UFO investigation, the first thing I would do is fire rockets into these lights with instruments and see what they're compri- composed of or what the energies are. And uh, Echo said, well, uh, I wonder what would happen then. And Theo said, well, it would be very interesting to find out. And so, you know, he was, while some of the things, the speculations he engaged in uh, may have seemed woo at the time, um, he was also all about uh, raising 
serious questions about separating the wheat from the chaff, you know, mm-hmm. and determining what is the real the real phenomena, which a lot of real ufologists hadn't really, or UFO buffs, as he called them, uh, hadn't really delved into. This is so Brent Rain. Go ahead, Brent. Oh, sorry. Well, I was going to say what was really interesting, uh, as I was writing the book, uh, I, I, I realized, too, that the... Uh, the well-known UFO crash at Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. happened that same night as that uh, Barham Cloud launch from uh, from Virginia. And uh, if we're going toward a commercial, I can I can get back on that afterwards. Well, yeah, let's let's resume this after the top of the hour break. This is Brent Rains. The brand new book is John A. Keel: The Man, the Myths, and the Ongoing Mysteries. And when we come back, we'll talk about um, um, the similarities between Charles Fort um, and John Keel and maybe um, some other good stuff, too. Uh, Brent's website is apmagazine.info, and you can get that free subscription to Alternate Perceptions Magazine. Stay tuned for more conversation about John Keel, and you're going to learn more about when you think about UFOs, that it's probably, most undoubtedly, more than just bright lights in the sky. Jim Shorty and Scott Colborn and you guys and gals, we really appreciate you being out there. Stay tuned. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln. Offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And, uh, boy, here's a blast from the past. Um, the Nebraska Center for Continuing Education Exploring Unexplained Phenomena number four that was an event we held May 
second and third, and I think it was 1992, uh, presenters Lloyd Arbach, Jenny Randles, Ray Boucher, Martin Caden, James Goodall, Linda Moulton Howe, George Win- Wingfield, Jenny Randles, and uh, I'm trying to see if that was the one, too, that we had John Keel here, too. Yep, John Keel on the Mothman. Boy, what a what a weekend that was, Brent. Uh, yeah, yes, it, God, that uh, very, what a lineup. That was yeah. my only time personally, face-to-face, to be able to hang out with John Keel. Um, how... From your vantage point, is there a lot of, of similarity between the work of Charles Fort uh, earlier in the 1900s and uh, then John Keel? Did, uh, did one kind of pick up where the other left off? Well, yeah, uh, Keel was, you know, because in the 80s into the 90s, he, in New York City, had a, uh, a 14 group that had monthly meetings. And uh, he created a little society there. He was a 14 going back to his childhood. He, he, uh, you know, he was reading. He was called himself a reading machine, and he read everything on a variety of subjects. And one of them was Charles Fort. And so that, uh, you know, Fort wrote about strange things in the sky and strange things that happened to people at ground level. And, you know, this is where it no doubt had an influence on... Uh, Keel's thinking when she started to delve into the UFO puzzle in the 1960s, and plus his own paranormal UFO experiences that had, you know, going back to his childhood on. And uh, he was always interested in different kind of mysteries, and he was he was actually thinking about becoming a stage magician, uh, but he was also becoming known at an early age as, as a writer, and it, it seemed like, you know, People liked his writings. He started writing at 14, a column for in New York, the, where he lived close to Buffalo, the Perry Herald, for uh, called Scraping the Keel. And he made $2 an article. And so when he was 17, he decided to uh, go to New York City. Uh, he hitchhiked, had 75 cents in his pocket. It sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yep. He hadn't even graduated high school yet. <laughs> and he was going to go and uh, make his mark on the world. But, um, you know, he had, uh, he did very well. He got uh, honorary Ph.D. later in life in herpetology and archaeology. He had a, a wide range of interests. Uh, um, you know, uh, Sandra Martin, who was his literary agent, uh, uh, you know, her statement about the book is actually on the front cover and of, of, of my book here, John A. Keel. And he, uh, you know, was... She was very impressed with, with Keel, said he was, uh, she knew many writers, and uh, he was one of her favorites, and she loved strange creatures from time and space, and uh, thought he was, uh, you know, he could write anything, she said. And uh, One of the he, similarities that I found with, with reading your book, and it reminded me again of, of Charles Fort, where Fort talked about uh, doubt is a good thing uh, in in your book, the very last page is um, John Keel's memorable battle cry, belief is the enemy. And uh, 
my take on that is that when you when you believe something so strongly you're adamantly saying yes at times you start to close yourself off to further information and i've seen right. this myself brent in people that that go through the long process of becoming a phd um they get so entrenched in their particular narrow area of study that they are the acknowledged expert. They are very good at what they've learned and done that they begin to ignore stuff that's outside that. And uh, when questions are raised, they become almost defenders of the way that they arrived at their present position. So belief can be the enemy because it starts to close you off towards other ways or future ways of knowing other alternatives. Yeah, I know that I was, you know, uh, I kind of identified with a statement that Jacques Vallée made back in 1991 at a MUFON conference where no doubt he was <laughs> speaking. And uh, he said, I seem to be the only one here that's made his mind up as to what this is all about. And uh, I couldn't help but think last weekend when I was at the Alien Expo, everything was about alien and everybody was talking extraterrestrial, uh, most everyone. Um, and I was thinking, boy, uh, um, they may, you know, tie me up to uh, a stake and burn me alive once I get up and do my talk, but it didn't happen luckily. <laughs> a lot of them were in church that Sunday, I believe. But, you know, um, I'm thinking we don't really, I mean, extraterrestrial is a good theory, but, uh, and, but it's become such a, a belief for many, you know, and uh, there may be other explanations. And so I, I did my, well, did the best I could to present a uh, kind of a Keelian point of view and, and uh, the alternative. And Keel used to insist, you know, this is only uh, speculation, you know, don't, don't, uh, he didn't want to be burned at the stake either. Um, but he had good ideas, and uh, he came from, a, you know, he considered himself more of a 14 than a ufologist. Mm -hmm. In fact, he didn't like to be called a ufologist. No, uh, he did not. No. <laughs> and, in fact, he he kind of said he uh, felt uh, kind of like a, a demonologist uh, because of some, some of the things that he encountered were the men in black and so on, and, and uh, Al Greenfield pointed out in his research that uh, witchcraft and such, uh, demonology was filled with MIB-type descriptions. They thought they had many different frames of reference. And, uh, you know, and of course in the book is actually a, a photograph of uh, a person, an MIB-type, that uh, Alan Greenfield himself uh, photographed in West Virginia back in 1969 when they were having one of their Internet, uh, Congress of Scientific Evologist meetings. Uh, and... Uh, he said he was right behind the guy, chasing him, and he went around the corner, and he was right there just seconds, and said there was nowhere he could have gone, but the guy had just disappeared. And he, before he started running, he took a picture of him and said he'd shown it to other people, and they said that's the exact person that I saw. Um, you know, claimed him I'd be in counties, except it was years later, and he said he looked the same as in the picture. So When we use that term, MIB, that stands for Men in Black. And many of our listeners were going to think about the Will Smith movies. Um, so 
Tell us more about the men in black. I read that chapter last night and just found it fascinating. Uh, who do we think well, yes. the men in black are, or at, le- at least what do they do? Well, Chris Keel had gotten a number of reports, and what he wanted to do was actually, he didn't figure he had a chance to uh, uh, catch up with the flying saucers, so he thought he had uh, maybe find an MIB. Recommend he, he arrive on the scene, uh, I think, in a couple instances where he just minutes before these people claimed they had just had a visit from an MIB. Uh, sometimes it appears uh, like a government agent or something threatening people, uh, dressed in black suit, you know, black fedora hat, maybe sunglasses. And, uh, and then other times it might be a, a vacuum cleaner salesman or something, just someone suspicious or selling Bibles or <laughs> uh, various disguises. But uh, the subject will always turn around with a they're trying to sell them the product to be talking about UFOs. And some people claim that, you know, they were uh, visited immediately after before they even had a chance to tell their story uh, to anyone. And uh, this person would come by and warn them to uh, not talk about the experience, or maybe they had picked up an artifact at the site and they wanted that artifact back. And uh, this is the one story that I have in there. Uh, this gentleman over in North Carolina had told me that he'd investigated a uh, mutilation case. And um, and then just shortly afterwards, he's uh, in this trailer he's, uh, that he was used as a business office, and this car pulled up, and he thought it was probably the police. Uh, you know, routinely he, he had some rentals, and they would you know, ask him about different things going on. and. Mm-hmm. And instead, these uh, three MIB types came in. There was two really tall ones who were, I guess, almost like twins. They they had a very strange look. They all had sunglasses on and, and uh, dark suits. And the two tallest ones had to sort of bend over in order to come inside. No facial and, hair, uh, no eyebrows, no eyelashes. Yeah, very, very strange look. And there was a much shorter guy who did most of the, you know, he was doing all the talking, really. And... Um, and he kept thinking, you know, that the guy was reading his thoughts, and he wanted to see their eyes. And finally, almost like he was reading his thoughts, the guy took his glasses off and had these strange, strange-looking eyes, round eyes with this little pupil there, you know, and, and uh, um, definitely not human. And they were like the size of a silver dollar and round, as I recall. And uh, And then when they left... He was like, sort of like, uh, uh, had a hard time getting himself in, 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 in motion. He realized that uh, while he, the little guy was distracting him, somebody had gone, one of the tall guys had obviously gone behind him and got a, uh, a tape, a uh, videotape out of the uh, video recorder that he had. And it wasn't in, you know, where it was supposed to because he checked immediately after the, they left. And uh, also there was um, a passage of time that uh, seemed longer than their visit. Uh, so maybe missing time involved here. So it's uh, uh, And then, of course, was the Canadian case that I recount, too, that uh, was told to me uh, by an investigator where it had, like, some of that Jenny Randall's uh, Oz effect, you know, where suddenly the environment changes around them, and uh, these characters just uh, seem very very strange indeed uh 
You know, this instead of the mall being crowded or the street outside being crowded, suddenly it's like everybody else just disappears. Just this person communicating with these two uh, weird MIB types. And oh, that was they, the case. Yeah, where the 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 young young man follows them outside, and they go across a parking lot, and in the pouring rain, these two. MIB guys are standing at the edge of the parking lot looking out towards this muddy field and a fence in the distance. And then after a while, these two MIB guys begin walking through this muddy field and then all of a sudden they're gone. And this yeah, young man, and, uh, can't, he can't account for where they would have gone. They literally disappeared and so he went out in this muddy field and very quickly found that these two guys had left no footprints. Right, right. It, you know, that was one of the things that, as a young man, that Keel wrote me. I wanted to get his advice, you know, what, what, uh, how can I interview contactees? How can I find them and, and how can I investigate them? And he told me, well, they're not going to just come right out to you. And he said, uh, you've got to... Uh, First of all, he says, I recommend you study up on apparitions um, and religious phenomena and some of the uh, scholarly literature and stuff. It sounded like, to me, a young man, uh, like this is something like, like a college assignment here. You know? mm-hmm. In fact, when I was in New York City one time uh, with my parents on a trip, I, I went into a bookstore and I found this book, uh, Apparitions, by uh, uh, Mr. Terrell who was a parapsychologist, this was the book that Keeler recommended I, I read to uh, kind of bone up on the similarities between some of these UFO beings that are reported and religious apparitions or ghostly apparitions. And of course, in his grand creatures in time and space, he, he made the comment that uh, ghosts, UFO beings, UFOs, uh, what's the difference? And, you know, I, I've had to consider that because some of the UFOs, that people see are kind of ghost-like uh, uh, craft going through trees like they're not even there or through into a hillside like it's a cloud. Um, and the way people see the beings uh, just appearing, disappearing, or sometimes transparent. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of strange reports, and I can understand why a nuts and bolts keyhole of NICAP would be kind of uh, reluctant to get in the middle of all that and just try to stick with the <laughs> the craft descriptions. But um, do do you think that that there, some of Keel's outlooks um, that there is a sinister element to all this that there is deception going on that we're being um, played with guided? Do you think at all that that contributed to uh, his depression? Yeah, he. I know that uh, I sent him a. Did one did one feed the other? It it, it could have. Uh, I I kind of kind of think so. It's uh, I try to take a more upbeat, positive. I, I realize you know there's negative and there's there's positive and and um, you know that experience that he he had uh, described uh, to different people. And it never was published in Mothman prophecies, but he he admitted that this experience was uh, um, happened at a time when he was finally uh, putting it all together, and that was uh, back in December fifteenth, nineteen sixty-seven, 
when he's in his New York apartment and uh, he's uh, he has a visitor that he hadn't seen in years, uh, a gentleman that he had been best man at the guy's wedding. He'd known, but he hadn't seen him in a while. And the guy just happens to come by at this this particular day, the day that the Silver Bridge collapsed, and uh, and was you know on the Ohio River between Ohio and and West Virginia, right at Point Pleasant there, and which uh, had a lot of similarity, a lot of precognitive dreams and such that people had been having for some time. He felt something was going to happen on that date that he was watching, you know, in his apartment watching TV, and uh, this friend shows up for several hours. They even go out to eat. They even attended Jim Mosley uh, talk in uh, New York they had later that day. Uh, I've tried to see if anybody had any pictures, but, uh, you know, talking to the old-timers, uh, like uh, Al Greenfield and uh, Rick Hilberg and so on, and, and uh, nobody has any pictures. And, you know, uh, something like that, Jim Mosley in New York, uh, 1967, doing a talk, somebody had to have pictures. And he says that this guy was just as uh, real and physical as could be, because the but he later on he's at Macy's and he runs into the guy's wife. And he says, "Oh, I uh, met your husband," and she's like, "When?" And he says, "Yeah, oh, it was uh, you know in December '67." Well, that's impossible. Uh, my husband died in, of a heart attack July 1965, and uh, he says, "Well, are you sure?" And she says, "You know," she gets kind of aggravated. And says, "Yeah, of course I'm sure." Uh, you know, I was there. I'm, I'm his, his, you know, I was his wife. And uh, Fakil is startled by this. He uh, admits to having sleepless nights. And during uh, the 2013 Mothman Festival, John Keel talked about this story with uh, Tim and, and uh, John Frick. And, and uh, they told me that uh, one of them had asked Keel, uh, well, what do you think about this experience you had? And he says it's. Um, he says it hurts my brain to think about. It. I try not to. Mm-hmm. And I thought any time that something hurts Keel's brain, it's got to be, got to be major. But for a lot of us, that experience would have been seen as a positive thing. But with Keel's evolving worldview and his idea that we were just being manipulated uh, by these things, um, he didn't see anything positive in it. And, you uh, you point out in the book that that Rosemary Ellen Guiley um, had at the onset a similar view of the connection between all these fields of the paranormal that they're all interactive, uh, but she believed in the balance and order, and that there was a at the end of all this there was a benevolence that was at work, and that was I think how she contrasted herself with John. Right, and and that's uh, I know um, uh, Hakan Blankovitz uh, had commented. Uh, he's a Swedish researcher, and he visited Sweden, and they met back in '76. And and uh, Hakan is very involved in, in in studying esoteric literature and the occult and stuff, and making comparisons to a lot of things Kiel made comparisons to. But um, you know, there was he had the speculation that if Keel had been more familiar with some of the esoteric, more upbeat stuff, maybe he, it would have helped him to uh, come to a maybe a little more positive uh, perspective. But I know that um, when I wrote my book, 
visitors from Hidden Realms, I sent him a copy, and uh, he replied back that uh, he says, I see you try to do what I attempted to do myself and to make sense of it all, but, uh, and then he went on a little rant about uh, uh, that none of it's positive, the religion is coming, you know, trying to feed us all this stuff, but, you know, the world is coming to an end, and there was a lot of doom and gloom in what he wrote. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that became his take, and and you know, don't think it was a real healthy one. Um, I know there's there's bad, and then I think you've got to find the balance with the good as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, I was the uh, co-facilitator, Brent, uh, and co-founder of a extraordinary experiences support group that began in 1988. Um, and part of the reason was is that that was really in the area that I live in. That was sort of the the height, if you will, of people coming forward and talking about their close encounter experiences, their contact experiences. The mm-hmm. Lincoln was the site of the 1988 uh, Mutual UFO Network International Symposium. So there were a lot of speakers coming to Lincoln and a lot of interest people in the area. So uh, a friend of mine and myself founded this group, and we met monthly for many, many years. Um, and one of the things that we noted in that group was that it wasn't just UFOs, that people that had seen a craft and even had close-up encounters they were reporting other paranormal experiences that I believed would help explain and help understand the entirety, the whole of this experience the person was having. And even when initially the person was reporting what would have been a quote-unquote negative experience, like they wouldn't say, you know, door number three, I'll go through that door and had shoes. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. Ultimately, it served to, to help guide them, to change their ways, to open their minds up, to get them to react in a different way. It was actually uh, an instructive experience. What first was negative turned into a, a positive thing, and I saw that time and time again. Well, that's interesting. That was something that, uh, you know, Ray Hernandez and I, have dis- I met last weekend of discussion. You know, he's the uh, driving force behind the free organization, the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Extraordinary Experiences. And uh, he's found statistically that, uh, although a lot of them start out traumatic, in the end, the highest, very high percentage, end up being positive experiences. You know, and it's uh, opened their minds up to... Um, things that they otherwise would not have uh, come to incorporate into their lives. And it's been more of a positive thing, the vast majority of them. And, uh, you know, he he uh, has pointed that out a number of times and based probably on his own experience, too, experiences that started a few years ago. Before that, he was a complete uh, uh, skeptic, you know, on such things. Yeah, how many people, Brent, in fact, I would just enlarge this question to the the audience listening right now. Um, Folks, how many people do you know that have said, 
Oh, man, my world's crashing down. I just got fired. Or I just lost my job because of so-and-so. Then some time goes by, and you see these people again. You go, how's it going? And they say, couldn't be better, wonderful. You know, thinking back, I would have thought, gosh, the end of the world was happening with that losing that job, but now I'm doing something else that I like better, and uh, I'm more comfortable, content. I'm more <laughs> me. How many times have we heard that? I've had that in my own life. I mean, <laughs> honestly, uh, you know, I, I, I was, you know, as a teenager, I wanted to get out there and do what Keel did, and uh, I had a delay. I got inducted into the military, mm. and I thought, oh gosh, you know, uh, there, there goes my plans. I, you know, getting out of high school and doing what I wanted to do. So while I'm out there, though, uh, I, I, you know, I, I got a chance to sign up uh, with the Navy um, if I, you know acted 10 days before my induction of the Army, so I thought, oh, my brother was in the Navy, I'll, I'll try that. And uh, I ended up um, at uh, Mayport, Florida, which I remembered uh, there was a, a lady researcher and experiencer who had had a UFO encounter, poltergeist, and I looked her up and had all kinds of opportunity to meet with her, and this was when the flap of 73 broke out, too, and mm -hmm. uh, we worked on cases together. UFOs, Bigfoot, talked a lot about paranormal. And so I ended up um, having, you know, all these unique experiences. And I wouldn't be here in Tennessee if I hadn't been for being in the Navy either because that's how I met my wife, you know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, Good. what started out as being feeling all wrong ended up being perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was involved in a, a romantic relationship in 2012 that fizzled. And for a while I thought to myself, woe is me. And as time passed, I said, thank God I dodged that bullet. Uh, so things do have a uh, way of working out. Let's take the bottom of the hour break, uh, Brent. And uh, this will uh, be just a little bit longer so that if you need to get up and use the bathroom or get some more coffee, you can do that. And we'll come back in, in three or four minutes here, okay? Okay, sounds good. Uh, this is Brent Rains. His last uh, name is spelled R-A-Y-N-E-S. He is the editor and publisher of Alternate Perceptions Online Magazine. That website is apmagazine.info. And my suggestion is that you go there and sign up for a free subscription. And uh, it's an interest, interesting online magazine. The brand new book that you'll also get information about there on that website is John A. Keel, The Man, The Miss, and The Ongoing Mysteries. Brent's also the author of On the Edge of Reality and Visitors from Hidden Realms. I'm Scott Colborn, and Jim Shorty and I are here in the studio. We're gonna get a little bit more coffee and uh, maybe stand up and stretch. We'll be right back with more conversation. Ladies and gentle people, sure glad you're out there. Stay tuned. He puts on his leathers And he says goodbye He says, you know I love you, baby But I gotta ride Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD.
This Week in Lincoln is supported by the local venues listed here. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. On Saturday, August 24th, 90 Proof starts at 9 at Bailey's Local. Derek and Ella play Crescent Moon Coffee at 8. Jupiter Circus starts at 7 at the Bourbon Theater. Blues Project is at the Zoo Bar at 6. And Lori Frazier comes to Metal Art Coffee at 7 p.m. On Sunday, August 25th, the Playmore Ballroom's Country Night features Steel City and Mackenzie Jalen beginning at 8. And the Derailers start at 5 at the Zoo Bar, followed at 8 by Zoolarius. That's live music happening this week in Lincoln. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Says you know I love you, baby, but I gotta ride. I hear the call of the road in his side. See the soaring eagle in his eye. So I give him his wings, let him fly. In his rambling solitude, he'll find what he needs. In the stoic silence of the mountains, wisdom of the trees. In the freedom of the uncluttered sky, as the hours and the miles unwind. Well, that was fun. Yeah. We just had uh, Vic Valverde here in the studio. Uh, we just played his his promotion for Mesoterra. And he just appeared like magic. Oof. Yeah. We could have had him done the live voiceover for that. That would have been fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Okay, Jim, you got good coffee. We're okay I do. there. I, yep. And uh, enjoying the conversation with Brent. Let's bring him Very back much. here. Uh, Brent, uh, in the in the in the book John A. Keel, there's a number of of things that you touch on, and then you bring in other people, um, and of course we've got to talk about uh, Mothman. Um, 
people associate that with Point Pleasant and what happened there with the crash of the bridge. And that was sort of, if you will, a culmination of a lot of these uh, very weird encounters and sightings. Uh, but you point out that John Keel said that um, the Mothman reports have been reported from all over the world. Yeah, the Mothman, Birdman, or whatever, these winged beings, was a was really a global phenomenon. And uh, when I, let's see, I, I, I got a letter from him in, uh, wow, let's see, when was that? It was a few decades back, uh, in, I'm going to say the early 90s, and he was uh, expressing at that time that that really no longer interested him that much, you know, that uh, kind of like been there, done it, you know, um, in, in the beginning, it was it was quite a revelation to him, and uh, he didn't uh, really know a whole lot about it at the time. But you know, as he continued to do his research and getting feedback from from his articles and books, uh, he realized that there was a lot of people that had similar experiences uh, uh, in many different countries. What was and, the date uh, of that Point Pleasant? I'm, I'm going from memory here. Was it '67? Uh, Do you remember well, the, what it was? First, it was uh, it was actually uh, okay. No, November fifteenth, nineteen sixty six, was the uh, uh, Linda and Roger Skyberry and, and uh, the other couple whose name is currently uh, not processing, but they were in the TNT area when they encountered the Mothman at that time, mm-hmm. and. Uh, they were quite frightened and got in uh, the car that Roger was driving. Uh, seems like it was a 57 uh, Chevy, and he headed down 62, Route 62, toward um, Point Pleasant. It was several miles trip, and, and this creature continued to follow them. Uh, tall, six, seven-foot, uh, red eyes. Uh, was right over the car at one point, presumably the they they could see the wing one wing on one side and the other wing on the other side just right right over the, the top of their car and uh, and when they arrived in in Point Pleasant they went and uh, reported their uh, experience uh, to a uh, uh, the police and uh, and that's where you know Keel read about it uh, a little later. And he was already, as I recall, he was already in that area in in West Virginia, uh, following up on a on a story of a uh, that is also in his Strange Creatures in Time and Space, the uh, story about a uh, a cat that had like wing wing like appendages. And so, what better story to follow up on than a, a man sized thing with wings <laughs> chasing a car down uh, this Route 62? in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And so he showed up uh, a little later, ended up, I think, in all, making five different uh, investigative trips down there. And I was lucky enough to uh, locate Dan Drazen, who was was with Keel during a lot of that, shared some of the stories with me, is, is interviewed in the book, and uh, was actually a documentary producer and was going to do a, a report on, on these things with uh, for PBS. But uh, uh, for some reason, they, they dropped the ball and decided they didn't want to do it. 
but he got to go there, meet a lot of the people. He's mentioned several times in uh, Mothman Prophecies. And uh, and today he's actually produced a documentary on uh, EVP, ITC type things where people have picked up audio and pictures, images of, of uh, ghosts, you know, spirits. And uh, and that's how I actually located him. Uh, he had been over to the Netherlands and uh, uh, was investigating a uh, experience over there that Nancy Caldwell, the crop circle that he had been investigating, the guy who said he had mediumistic abilities and get images on film. And uh, so he went over to investigate it, and he had all these controls in place, and images appeared on uh, his camera that uh, he couldn't explain, uh, facial images. Uh, one of them was a, uh, a parapsychologist that had passed, or at least appeared to be. And uh, so anyway, that was a very, very lucky thing there, and, and getting to interview uh, a hack, uh, Hakan Blankovic from Sweden, and other people uh, who knew Kiel and had experiences. And uh, I consider, you know, I think that added a great deal to the book. And it's not strictly a bio, bio, biographical, uh, although there's a lot of biographical material about Kiel, but uh, it also includes, you know, my own ongoing uh, investigations into these things that were really inspired by Keel and what other mm -hmm. people, how they were affected. And, and uh, you know, uh, we were trying to come up with a name for the book, and I I told Rosemary, I said, well, maybe we should call it Keelian Influences or something. And I said, no, no, that, would, that wouldn't do. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, These Mount... The Mount Pleasant, or excuse me, Point Pleasant um, events seem to... A culminate with with a number of people reporting not only encounters with Mothman but encounters with uh, MIB men in black with very weird things happening in their houses uh, and then uh, the um, bridge collapsed and a number mm -hmm. of people were killed and uh, I don't want to put words into your mouth but did Keel believe that that these prior events were kind of a harbinger of the, eventually the bridge collapsing, were they all kind of pointing towards something that was going to be taking place? Yeah, he felt that they, they did. Uh, you know, Mary Heyer, the, the newspaper reporter there in Point Pleasant, uh, she, uh, when he talked with her on the phone afterwards, um, she was right there and when the bridge collapsed and she saw what was going on and she said it was just like this, dream that she had uh john said uh the christmas packages floating in the ohio river you know yes um uh, and uh and there was just a lot of uh and what really was was a uh, was was interesting to me which i included in my first chapter was this uh Hacken, um prison uh from sweden who was a friend of hacken blankovitz and he came Point Pleasant. Uh, he, John Keel, wrote him a, a letter of introduction, which he took with him to uh, Point Pleasant back in 1969 and 1970. So he was on the scene. He uh, interviewed some 30 witnesses himself, and uh, you know he knew he worked with uh, Mary Heyer, newspaper lady, and 
Linda Skyberry and her mom and dad and uh, many of the other witnesses. And again and again, he said the one thing that really stuck with him was the shining red eyes, uh, almost like a hypnotic effect on them. And they just and 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 uh, he said that people who knew them said that they were changed after these experiences. And uh, they probably described the eyes more than anything. And um, so that it was uh, very traumatizing to them. They were all had become like chain smokers, or many of them. And he said he even hadn't, you know, he had quit smoking, but he started smoking just listening to their stories. And uh, I thought that added a lot of very interesting background mm-hmm. right there because, you know, a lot of people have tried to, you know, accuse Keel of having distorted the, the details uh, that this was not as strange. It's just some kind of, you know, uh, of course, they, they started out the so-called experts saying it was a barn owl or uh, sandhill crane, but it was something much, much stranger than that from their descriptions. And I was in Point Pleasant myself and talked with Linda Scottberry and her mom and dad. And I met an, uh, well, I, I didn't meet her. I called her on the phone. I talked with uh, a woman who's mentioned in Keel's accounts of uh, having seen this thing in the TNT area. Her husband worked there. And she was, uh, she said that they, there was a storm coming. And she was going outside to uh, cover some motorcycles. And all of a sudden, she saw this man like, tall man like figure running across the field. And it was like, Again, like an entrancement occurred, you know, she couldn't take her eyes off of it, and her ears were popping, making, you know, like a, like a high-altitude thing or something, a, mm-hmm. a big pressure change. And uh, she thought later, this must have been a robot, because it was running so fast. And uh, she didn't see any wings, just this dark man-like figure. Of course, Rosemary saw, uh, has seen on the TNT area these uh, dark... Uh, man-like figures that she associated with the shadow people or, or the jinn, um, and, uh, which is part of Muslim tradition, these, these beings from uh, a third order of reality. They're not supposedly not angels, not demons. They're another order of uh, creation. Um, but again, um, Rosemary thought that this was, that tradition was significant, that we're dealing with uh, something that uh, uh, comes as part of the multiverse, and uh, a lot of Probably ghost hunters are thinking they're dealing with uh, ghosts when they're dealing with a gym. And of course, she wrote uh, one or two books on, on the subject. One she co-authored, but uh, one she wrote on her own. Brent, I had and, a bookstore uh, years ago, uh, and one of my uh, uh, wall plaques was actually a hand-drawn piece of artwork um, from a man's experience with a winged, winged creature. Uh, outside of Fall City, Nebraska. That's clear down in the southeast corner of the state of Nebraska. And Mm -hmm. he and his son had driven to their rural uh, acreage out in the country, and they were in the the farmyard, if you will, getting out of their their, uh, car pickup. Um, I believe it was a pickup because there was a gun rack in the the truck and a a gun there, uh, a rifle. And they happened to just simply look up, and floating over their farmyard was this winged creature uh, that was basically a, a man uh, with wings um, floating 15 to 20 feet up in the air. And the father 
had the thought, oh my God, I'm going to get my rifle out and shoot that thing. And then just as soon as he thought that, he had uh, an impression, a very strong sense, like he was being given something to think about, um, if you will, a form of telepathy. And uh, mm -hmm. the message was, uh, no, don't shoot. I, I mean you no harm. And so he and his son stood and watched this thing, basically at, you know, eight to 10 miles an hour, basically floating over them and then floated out of, of eyesight. So that was the point that, that, that uh, you came to in the book, that there are many other reports of these winged creatures. We now know that we've had a, a bunch of reports from Chicago in the modern era of people seeing a winged creature um, we've got reports from Mexico of people seeing what looks like somebody seated in a chair flying around in the sky, and they think it's a, a witch or some sort of a, a sorcery thing going on. But uh, I think we come full circle in our discussion in the last couple of minutes we've got, Brent, that um, what was that Greg Bishop quote in the end of your book where he talks about the nature of reality? Oh, yeah, the UFOs, they're, they're not only stranger than we think, they're stranger than we can think. <laughs> yeah, think about that, folks. <laughs> yeah, and then I have a picture of Keel with his pipe, and I, I, I write at the end, put that in your pipe and smoke it, you know. No, he was, a, he was a, a real character. One of his talks that he gave in Lincoln, besides on the Mothman, was a alternative hypothesis to Roswell where he talked about the Japanese had used these uh, Fugo balloons and mm -hmm. had sent these things aloft, hoping that they would come down in the western part of the U.S. and start forest fires and fires in cities and et cetera. And so John was theorizing that what could have been found in Roswell was one of these Fugo balloons, albeit you know, 1947. So uh, there was a lot of people at the conference that really raised their eyebrows and said, oh, come on, man. Uh, but his whole point was that he was trying to get people to think outside the box. Um, Brent, yeah, we're out yeah. of time here, so I want to thank you very much <laughs> for your good work. Well, thank you, Scott. Um, I hope I people have enjoyed it. our conversation, and I would direct them to to go to your um, online magazine, Alternate Perceptions. It's apmagazine.info. If you like to think and like to hear people and what they're doing and thinking, uh, go there and sign up for a subscription. Um, Brent, so you've had a busy weekend a week ago. What are you doing this weekend? Oh, well, um I'm actually uh, hoping that it doesn't rain for a little bit. We've got a plant. We've done some landscaping out here. We're going to put some uh, some grass seeds and and uh, some hay. <laughs> and so we're hoping for a, a nice looking lawn here after uh, a month or so. Good. All goes well. <laughs> you're you're always welcome back here, Brent. Thank you so much for your work, and we will touch base with you again uh, in September for what is reality. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. Appreciate it. Brent Raines, the author of the brand new book, John A. Keel, The Man, The Myths, and the Ongoing Mysteries. Um, 
I was certainly influenced by what I knew about John Keel, as I imagine many other people were. So uh, appreciate Brent taking time today. Stay tuned for uh, Beta Radio. And it's coming up here in just a matter of minutes. Jim, you and I are out of here. Yeah. I hope you have a great rest of the day. And, and you as well, Scott. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. Okay. I'll be here. Thanks so much for listening. It's been great to know that you're out there. This October, we celebrate 35 years of broadcast. Stay tuned. We've got a lot more in store. Until next week, I'm Scott Colborn, Walk in Beauty.